0: The following is a sermon from the edgington evangelical presbyterian church in taylor ridge illinois uh, but if you haven't already let me ask you to grab a bible and we're opening up to revelation chapter 22 this morning and uh truth be told we'll be in uh, a number of places uh especially in uh towards the end of matthew's gospel uh, all the more reason for you to have your bible out and, and be ready to go as you uh, turn with me or uh, perhaps attempt to follow along the very best of your ability. Uh, What we do here at Edgington is called expositional preaching, where the point of the sermon is the point of the text. Uh, So if you've got your eye on the Bible, you'll see where we're at and what we're talking about at any one point. Revelation 22 is where we're headed, uh, the last chapter. Uh, And uh, as you've uh, arrived there, you'll notice in that shorter catechism question, regarding the exaltation of Christ that you see elements there that we have already confessed in the Apostles' Creed in that center section about the person and work of Jesus. We have read about, thought about, confessed Christ's exaltation in his resurrection. We thought about his exaltation in his ascension, returning to heaven. We have thought about the exaltation of Christ In his heavenly session, his seating upon the throne at the Father's right hand, we come now to his exaltation in his glorious appearing. Now, everybody loves a good story. And uh, usually if you think about stories, think about fairy tales, we are used to stories being bracketed by something along the lines of a once upon a time and a happily ever after. We like resolution to our stories. We like to be clear about how the stories end. Well, here in the Apostles' Creed and here in Revelation chapter 22, we see how the Bible declares the bracketed end and the conclusion of the story of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, as you're looking at Revelation 22, I want you to keep your eye on the Apostles' Creed, because I want you to pay attention to something in the Creed. The creed is largely, grammatically, past tense. Meaning, things that have already happened. Especially as it relates to the person and work of Jesus, we confess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That he was born of the Virgin Mary. Past tense. That he in the past suffered under Pontius Pilate. That he was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended into hell. And he in the past rose again that he previously ascended that's all history it's all past tense it's all things that have already happened and then last week as we moved into the heavenly session of jesus we moved into the present tense of the creed didn't we that he is there seated at the right hand of god the father almighty that's now that is a present reality for the christian church that jesus reigns now but today. As we progress the narrative of redemption, we move into a future tense. That is to say, what is still yet to come, from there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. Come now to the unfolding story of God's redemption as it reaches its final chapter. And so we want to hear what God's Word has to say to us and how it should shape us as Christian believers as we confess this truth. Let's pray together and then ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we turn now to Your Word, believing that here You speak to us, that here You reveal us the truth about our lives, that here You teach us who we must be in light of who You are. And so, O Lord God, we ask that as we come to the Scriptures, that that same Spirit that moved upon John to record this word of revelation, might move upon our hearts to seal the truth of it, to teach it to us, to shape our lives in such a way that we might be a people living in the expectant glory of the blessed hope of the appearing of Jesus as he comes again. And so, Lord, come now in the power of your Spirit to bless your word to your people and prepare our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God. From Revelation in chapter 22, as you will make note of the several instances of Jesus' pledge of His return. Revelation 22, this is the Word of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree The God of the spirits of the prophets has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. May He write its truth on our hearts. Today, well, we are thinking this morning of what is referenced here many, many times in Revelation 22, as we have confessed together in the Apostles' Creed. From there, He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I think it's a shame that for many in the Christian church, this and other topics surrounded these end times related things are oftentimes shrouded with such mystery that produce in people fear and uncertainty. When I want to say to you very clearly that the Bible presents the constellation of events related to the end times, specifically focusing with the return of Jesus Christ as the blessed appearance of our glorious Savior that is intended to do and provide for you a hope that is sealed, a hope that is certain, a hope that is sure that in the face of all of life's trials, the Christian believer has peace because they believe in Jesus, who the Bible says will come again to judge the living and the dead. And this is a glorious truth. It is a truth that is intended to provide to you peace and comfort and serenity and glory and joy and happiness so that you might walk through the ages of your life with confidence in your Savior. You might be interested to know that when the math breaks down, one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament is somehow related to the events associated with the appearance of Christ in His second coming. There is that much concentration on the return of Christ because the New Testament wants Christian believers to be prepared, to be hopeful, to be sure, to be confident. In fact, the New Testament uses a phrase to talk about the return of Christ in His second coming, and it is the most often repeated phrase in the New Testament about the return of Christ. And it is the blessed hope The blessed hope of the Christian is the return of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation says that every eye will behold him, all will see his personal, visible, physical, triumphant return as the same Jesus who ascended to heaven by way of the clouds will descend from heaven's throne and thereby to inaugurate the fullness of the end times and the ushering in, of the end of days and the eternal state. We said in the past two weeks that when Jesus ascends to heaven and when Jesus sits down, He does not sit down to kick up His feet in comfort and to relax, but rather ascends and sits to reign over all things in preparation for this final stage of His exaltation, namely, his glorious appearing. What Jesus is doing right now, this instance in heaven, is he is preparing for his glorious appearing. And so we, the church, should likewise be prepared. So what I want to do this morning, as it relates to the amount of times we see in Revelation 22, the promise of his coming soon, I want to just ask and answer some questions in a very kind of simple reflection for you on this aspect of the Apostles' Creed today, but nevertheless want to be concentrating on some of the realities that people oftentimes ask. Questions that they ask about the second coming. The first one that we should ask and merely ask and somewhat get out of the way because there's not much that we can say about it is questions related to timing. Everybody wants to know when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen that we confess that Jesus will one day come again? When, when will the future tense of the Apostles' Creed become the present tense? When will Jesus return? As Jesus says several times here in Revelation 22, that he is coming soon, that he is coming soon. Several times we see that. But in fact, people were asking him uh, in the Gospels when he was here on earth conducting his earthly ministries, people asked him, well, exactly When is the soon? How soon is the soon? Jesus answers Matthew 24, verse 36, when he says, Concerning the day or hour, no one knows. Jesus says, Not even the Son of Man knows, but only the Father in heaven. It was uh, two years ago when we did our Advent series, uh, Thinking About the Person of Christ, When we thought deeply about that reality, we thought about the fact that Jesus, with respect to his humanity, does not know the answer to the question, when are you going to return? Jesus couldn't provide the answers to the disciples when they said, when's it going to happen? Because he says, I don't know. It's not for me to know, but only the Father. That is to say that the timing of the second coming is unknown and should not be inquired Let's look at a few things related to that as you go back to Matthew's Gospel. Come with me to Matthew chapter 24, and we'll be looking at several things in Matthew 24 and 25 because this is the section of Matthew's Gospel that is parallel to Mark's Gospel that's often called the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is uh, teaching about things related to the end times and he is speaking about many things that are oftentimes mysterious to us. If you look in Matthew 24 at verse 36. Matthew 24 and verse 36 is where Jesus says, but concerning that day, namely the return, that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus goes on to say that because the timing is unknown, there are ways that we should think about it, even if we don't have the answer relative to the timing. And he goes on to speak about Uh, by way of parable, the the reference to the thief coming in the night. Or the master of a house returning to find how the servants of the house have stewarded the talents that the master has deposited to him. Uh, If you look at Matthew 24, specifically on verse 42, Matthew 24, 42, Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect that is to say jesus does not suggest that just because you don't know the time does not give us an excuse not to be ready that there is a that there is a sense of readiness and a sense of preparation that the Christian believer must undertake that they, in their heart and in their life, is prepared, though they know not the time. There is this sense of being always prepared, as Jesus says there in verse 44, you must be ready. Jesus goes on in Matthew 25 to teach the parable of the ten virgins, and later there the parable of the talents in the middle of Matthew 25, again with the same points that what he means when he talks about being prepared for a time that we don't know is being prepared by being faithful. So, so Jesus, although the timing of the second coming is indeed a mystery, what Jesus expects Christian believers to do relative to the uncertainty about the timing is to be prepared by being faithful in the parable of the talents. Uh, we find the illustration of the master entrusting talents to servants, asking them to be faithful with what he has given to them, to be industrious, to be at labor for the service of the master, so that when the master returns, he finds that they were indeed faithful. So again, with respect to timing, we don't know. But just because we don't know doesn't mean we get to kick up our feet and do nothing. Jesus says, be ready, be ready, Be ready by being faithful. We want to be faithful because the Lord Jesus is returning as He promises soon at a time that is not disclosed so that we would not be spiritually lazy but rather spiritually industrious. What does that look like? What does it look like to to be found faithful by Jesus at His appearing? And I suppose we could answer that question by saying it could be so many things. But if we understand the heart of the Christian faith, of the Christian believer, uh, the chief aim, the chief end of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, what it means to be faithful for Jesus' kingdom is to be about the work of being set to glorify Jesus in what I'm doing. And so that's a great thing to ask as you go about your life, isn't it? As you go to work, as you go to school, as you go home, as you socialize, Does this glorify my Savior? Does what I am doing, is what I am saying, are the activities that I'm engaging in, glorifying to my Savior in such a way that if He were to return now, He would say to me, faithful servant, we don't want to be ashamed of what the Lord Jesus would find us giving our hearts to when He returns. That is all that we could say relative to timing, I think. But I think the greater interest, perhaps, for us relative to the Apostles' Creed and what causes everyone to sit up a little bit straighter in their seats, I think, is the fact that we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus is coming for the purpose of judgment. The Apostles' Creed says he will come for the purpose of judgment. Of both the living and the dead, or maybe you grew up learning it as the quick and the dead. The word quick just means living. But as it relates to judgment, we should understand several things. If you're still in Matthew 25, you'll see at verse 31 and following, Matthew 25 at verse 31 and following, that Jesus follows up these parables regarding the timing of his coming and the uncertainties, but what he expects of his followers to be prepared for it, is he speaks to them directly about his return for the purpose of coming in judgment. Matthew 25 at verse 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate one People from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Let's think about this then. As you think about the Lord Jesus, as you perhaps are by the Spirit's ability led to contemplate by the revelation of Scripture, the way you think about Jesus in his first coming, we associate with Jesus. The the meekness of his humanity, don't we? His meekness, his tenderness. He is mild. He is gentle. He gathers the children tenderly, places them on his knee. He is, in all of these respects, meek, mild, humble, tender, gentle. When the Bible says that Jesus will return again, the characteristic of his coming will not be in the meekness of his first coming It will be in the glory of his exalted reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, coming in that authority to bring with his authority judgment. Judgment. Pause. Keep your finger there in Matthew 25. But go back. Go back to the book of Revelation in chapter 19. I told you we're going to be doing some flipping this morning. Keep your finger in Matthew 25. Go back to Revelation 19, especially Revelation 19, verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11 speaks of this picture of the coming of Jesus so that if we are only able to, to picture in our mind by the Spirit the tenderness of His first coming in the Incarnation. Revelation 19 is given by the Spirit to John that He might write to the church the image of the exalted Christ coming in His second coming, not with meekness, but rather, Revelation 19, verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This Jesus, exalted in majesty, exalted in authority, exalted in dominion, is the Jesus who will come in His glorious appearing to render judgment by God's own authority. That picture is what the Bible presents of Jesus' second coming. And it is at this coming, Jesus says, that there will be a separation. Back in Matthew 25, back in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of the gathering of all nations as the dead are raised... And Jesus gathers before himself all people there to make a separation as a shepherd does from the sheep and the goats. Let's just make an observation quickly, shall we? One that the Bible makes again and again and again. The Bible says that in judgment there are sheep and goats. There is a right hand and there is a left hand. The right hand is the place of honor where the sheep go, the place of left hand is the place of dishonor where the goats go. But dear friends, did you notice that there's not a third option? It's very clear, isn't it? And it is a reality that the Bible presents again and again. As in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, "There is a broad road and a narrow road. There is a way to life, and there is a way to destruction, that at the end, in the judgment, before Christ's throne, He will separate sheep from goats, goats from sheep and nothing else. So that should begin to do something in us, shouldn't it? A realization of the urgency of faith in Jesus Christ to receive Him as He has offered in the Gospel so that we might be the sheep of His pasture rather than the goats of His exclusion and condemnation. Bible is very clear about this, that no one escapes the judgment of Christ. No one escapes the judgment of Jesus Christ. And that is relevant then for the unbeliever and for the believer. That is relevant for the unbeliever and relevant for the believer. And I want to think about that as kind of a a final place to, to sit and linger. What does the return of Christ in His glorious, exalted return, coming in the authority of His Father, riding on the white horse with a sword to strike down mean for the unbeliever? It means that the return of Jesus to the unbeliever is a terror. Isn't it? A horrible thing. The return of Jesus Christ for the unbeliever is a terror to them that because they have cursed the name of Jesus in this life when He returns they will not be able to call upon Him for mercy. Because they have scorned His mercy in this life when it was freely offered repeatedly without price because they have scorned it there will be no grace for them. The Bible presents Jesus' second coming not as a last opportunity to believe but rather the moment that seals the faint of the one who chooses to reject Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it then, that the Lord Jesus, who was judged so wrongly in his first appearance, right? We understand that before that kangaroo court, so wrongly judged is the one who will come to judge with righteousness. There will be nothing wrong. There will be nothing unfaithful or unjust about Jesus' judgment when He comes with His recompense to mete out the wrath of God. It will be terrible. Why does the Bible say that? Why does the Bible present the coming of Jesus in judgment for the unbeliever with such terror? Wouldn't it be nicer to just Not say anything, right? Just leave it alone and and, and not say a word. That mindset would be the same thing of the oncologist who chooses to tell you a lie rather than the truth to make you feel better in the temporary. Even though they know what's true of you, perhaps, in the long term. That's suggesting that it is somehow unloving to go to the house that is on fire and say, your house is on fire, get out, save yourself, what are you doing? Come out, come out, you don't know what you're facing. There is nothing unloving about the announcement of the return of Christ to the unbeliever because the Bible says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow, he is not wishing that anyone should perish, but that everyone come to repentance. So hear me very carefully believing in the return of Jesus and the church confessing the truth of the return of Jesus is for the purpose of announcing to all the world that you don't need to meet Jesus in the horror and terror of His judgment upon your sins. Why? Because He's offered to you now freely as a Savior. The Bible says the reason why it seems like it's taking a long time for Jesus to appear is because God is merciful in the delay to offer to everyone grace and forgiveness. There is therefore nothing unjust about the return of Jesus coming in judgment to mete out the wrath of God upon sin. What does that that do in our hearts then for those of us who love the Lord Jesus. your friends, if we love our neighbors, if we love our family members, if we love our co-workers, and the parents on our kids' sports team, and indeed our classmates and others, then we will say to them, there is a Savior. But isn't it astounding, church, that the Jesus whom we profess to love so dearly is a Jesus that we are so slow to speak about to others? Perhaps out of embarrassment, perhaps out of concern that we'll say something wrong, or they'll say something to us that... We won't be able to answer or we'll be tongue-tied or uncertain. But dear church, the Bible presents the return of Jesus coming in judgment for the unbeliever so the church would be motivated, mobilized, turned in their hearts, outward in love to say, Christ is a Savior for you. Dear Christian, don't be ashamed. And don't just love your neighbor temporarily by saying nothing and therefore not creating a rift, but love them for the sake of eternity to be so bold as to speak about these things with love in your heart. Not with judgment and condemnation. It is not for us to judge and condemn. It is us to announce a Savior that this might not be a reality that they should have to face. But dear friends, dear church, don't skim over this in embarrassment. The return of Jesus for the unbeliever is a terrible reality. What about for the believer? What about for the Christian believer? When we confess that he shall come to judge the living and the dead, that means everybody. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we, writing to the church, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So if you're, not, if you're not aware of this, let me say it to you very clearly, that you and I will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Christian believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When Jesus comes, He will come in judgment to judge the living and the dead. So what does that mean for Christians who will appear before the judgment seat of Christ? What should we say about this? What should we say? Well, if you are tender-hearted in your conscience at the thought of standing before the judgment seat of Christ as a Christian believer, you likely tremble because you think to yourself, my sins. And, And I know that that there are surely sins that, that God's grace is too small to cover. And you think to yourself, I'm going to have to stand before Jesus. And, and once and for all, the book of Revelation says, the books are going to be opened and it's all going to be spread out. It's all going to be revealed. Everything that I've ever been ashamed of, everything that I've ever kept secret from everyone who never knew will be before the eyes of the judge who sees all things and he will see my sins and what will I, what will I do? What should we say to you, Christian, who hears that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and are reduced to terror? Let me say this to you. Because Jesus is your Savior, Because Jesus is your Savior, that means the Bible says that He is your propitiation, your covering for sins. And because of that, the Savior will not expose your sins. The Bible says He is our advocate. And advocates don't reveal the crimes of their clients. Because He is our friend, it is the purpose and function of love to cover sins. What else does the Bible say about this? The Bible says that God will, through Jesus Christ, place our sins behind His back, Isaiah 38 verse 17. The Bible says that for the Christian believer, when our sins are forgiven, they are set as far as the east is from the West." Psalm 103 verse 12. It's a beautiful picture. Why does it say that? It doesn't say "north from south, It says "east to west because you can go east for eternity and never head west. You can go east forever. The Bible says God puts your sin as a Christian as far as the east is from the west. Micah, the prophet Micah says that God casts your sins into the depth of the sea, that he remembers them no more. When Jesus comes in judgment, he comes in judgment for the Christian and the judgment will not be by the law The judgment will be by the gospel. Christ comes to render judgment to the Christian according to the gospel, which is grace and forgiveness. So what should you do if you're a Christian and you consider the return of Jesus coming in judgment and you tremble with fear and anxiety and sorrow? What should you do? You should repent you should confess the things that give you anxiety and fear and sorrow and cause you to tremble you should do what the gospel calls you to do all the days of your life and especially here on the lord's day where we say lord i have sinned lord forgive me i am forgiven by grace help me to walk in that grace it is one of the most important evidences of your christian faith that you turn from your sins rather than embrace them because you exalt Jesus Christ as Lord, not yourself, not your sins, so you turn from them to follow Jesus. The good news of the return of Jesus Christ coming in judgment is Christ is the judge. And that means the judge is your Redeemer. and The Redeemer is your Savior. When the Apostle Paul speaks about the return of Christ, he says in 2 Timothy 4.8, that there is a crown of righteousness that is laid up for me with which Christ the Judge will render judgment. What that means is that when Jesus comes again in glory to render judgment, it is the judgment on the Christian, it is the final word, the final declaration that salvation The forgiveness of your sins is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When Jesus Christ renders judgment on your life as a Christian, when he returns, the judgment will be the gospel is true. Your sins have really been forgiven. Jesus is all the Savior you ever hoped He would be, and so much more. The judgment for the Christian will be grace upon grace, wonders of grace, to ponder the infinite dimensions of just how gracious God's grace truly is. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson says it. Sinclair Ferguson says, if there is a moment that I have for regret at the judgment seat of Christ, if there is a moment when hearing the declaration of my pardon and the forgiveness of my sins fully and finally, they're welcomed into the Master's rest. If there is a moment of regret, it will be this. He says, Lord, if I had known that Your grace was this gracious, if I had known that Your grace was really that, deep and true, then I would have lived with all of my energy to serve you all the days of my life rather than living in fear and trepidation and timidity. If I had known your grace was so gracious, I would have lived to serve you with all the ounces of my energy. And the Bible speaks to us as Christians about the judgment seat of Christ not to produce craven terror in us, but to instill within us the confidence of Jesus that we might live for the one who will render judgment over our lives fully and finally. So let me just suggest to you a few things that we need to take away from this. We as a Christian church confess that Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised and is ascended and in heavenly session will one day return in glory. What does that do for you? As a Christian believer living in this world, that if you've lifted up your head recently for like two seconds, you are aware of all the reasons why there is is so much burden and strife and struggle and sin and suffering. It makes you sick, doesn't it? There's so much hatred in the world and People hate each other for undue reasons. This world that we live in cries out in pain and in sorrow and in agony. The Bible says that that is like the world giving birth pains for what will be produced in the new order when Christ returns to bring the fullness of his kingdom, to usher in the fullness of eternal life. But we're not there yet, right? So we wait, and we endure, and we experience sufferings and trials and sickness, and all the things that make us groan. And yet, the Bible says, because we have this glorious promise of an appearing Savior, we wait with patience, we wait with confidence, we wait with courage, we wait with hope, and we are not undone, but we are rather given peace. I was thinking about that a lot, actually, early this morning, because... Uh, Mackenzie had pointed this out to me, I'm sure many of you have seen this before. The transcript from the 911 call, of Flight 93, from Todd Beamer, who's stuck in the back of the plane calling the operator, who then patches in the FBI, This is astounding courage, right? You can't read these words without being reduced to tears, just astounding and there's some controversy whether it's the actual transcript or it's just the memory of the operator but nevertheless the details are wonderfully clear that just prior to Todd Beamer and a group of courageous people on flight 93 deciding to overtake the terrorists he asked the operator to pray with him And they pray the Lord's Prayer and they recite Psalm 23 and He says let's roll what does Christian courage provide to you? In the face of life, in the face of tragedy, in the face of suffering and sorrow, it provides courage. Courage and comfort that no matter what, we have this hope and we have this peace. And it is only found In Jesus Christ, who shall come again to reveal our blessed hope. Dear friends, we must share in that blessed hope with all the saints and proclaim it to all the world. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who will return in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in Your Son, the Lord Jesus. We rejoice in the promises of His appearance to judge with righteousness and with justice. We rejoice in the promise that judgment for the Christian will be by the Gospel, and so full forgiveness will be laid out for us. We pray, Lord, earnestly for the confidence of Christ to speak the name of Jesus to all. O Lord, Receive glory as we wait upon you, who surely promises that you are coming soon, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.